I thought you were blowing the place up there. <laughs> well, thank you for coming out on a Friday evening when you could be home watching television or mowing the lawn or waiting for the next storm. Thank you for coming. Um, we're going to do a short series here in three messages on Acts chapter 20. Now, I want you to relax. Most of you work too hard. Everything I have to say is right here in this book, okay? If I see you with a pen and paper writing down furiously, I'm going to come out in the audience and break your pen. Is that true? I will come out and break your pen or take it. It's all right here. And if you just listen, you'll get so much more if you listen. Whenever you write, you're missing things. So will you watch for, okay, okay. I've entitled this message, Paul's Final Charge to the Ephesian Elders. Let me read the passage that I hope to cover tonight. You can just sit and relax, okay? In our church on Sunday morning, we make you stand when we read the word. But you need to relax and really enjoy the evening, all right? Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said... You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, would you get my water, please, brother? You're such a humble brother. You watch if it falls again, okay? This is an amazing passage of Scripture. It's really a special gift God has given to us. Paul speaking directly to the church leaders. No other place in the New Testament do we have anything like this. And although it's 2,000 years old, it is as relevant today as it was when Luke wrote this 2,000 years ago. These are Paul's final marching orders to the Ephesian elders. Now, here's what's amazing. You would think there would be five or ten books on this subject. You would think every major speaker would have written his book or his pamphlet on this subject. There's not one book on this subject. The only book I found was a very scholarly book. Uh, if you're suffering from insomnia, you might want to read it. Otherwise, no one would read this book. This is amazing that we haven't understood how important this passage is. This passage is actually an interpretive key to the other Pauline passages on elders and overseers and deacons. And it helps us to understand what he means because these words are directly from his mouth. It's his telling us who elders are and what they're supposed to do. 
It's a magnificent passage. Even if you're not a church elder, you will see there is much in here for you, for your own Christian life. Now, a little bit of background we need in order to set the stage for this special address to the Ephesian elders. Paul had labored in the city of Ephesus for three years, 52 A.D. to 55 A.D. These were some of his most fruitful years of ministry. Luke writes, All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Matthew, excuse me, Acts 19.10. But these were also some of the most difficult years of his life's ministry. He tells us he had many adversaries. Now, Ephesus, because Paul spent three years there, became an epicenter of Christianity and of mission work. The other great centers were Jerusalem, Antioch, and Rome. But Ephesus becomes a very special book in the New Testament. We have the crown of Paulinism, Ephesus, the book of Ephesus, written to this church. Paul worked with a group of men called elders or overseers. And as we see from the ending of this address, they loved him. And he loved them. He inspired people. He wasn't just a good manager or preacher. He inspired people to live for God. That's a different kind of ministry. They fall down and they cry and they weep and they kiss him. They will not see him again. Now, after three years in Ephesus, he heads west to the churches he had planted several years before. Corinth, Thessalonica, Philippi, Macedonia, Acadia. He wants to visit these churches for the last time because he tells us, and you'll see it up on the map there. Just leave the map up for a moment. He leaves Ephesus and he goes to Acadia and Macedonia and he's gone a year and a half. In that year and a half, the church in Ephesus is run by its elders. He, as he visits these churches in the West, picks up a group of representatives from these churches, and they have money to deliver all the way to Jerusalem for the poor. This is the offering for Jerusalem. This is something he had planned on over a year. So on the way to Jerusalem, he stops at the port city of Miletus, and from Miletus, he summons the elders to come for a final farewell meeting. This farewell speech demonstrates his high view of the elders and their indispensable role of protecting the church from false teachers. In fact, every new generation of leaders has to go over this passage. I would say if you don't know this passage uh, and you're a church elder or deacon, you ought to just quit now and do the church a favor. Seriously, because you don't know what you're doing. This passage is the final marching orders. What do you do in the absence of our apostles? Now, it starts with a role model to imitate. When the elders come to Paul, he begins his message by reminding them what they already know about his life. He says, you yourself know. Three times he says, you yourself know. So in other words, this sermon is Paul holding himself up as a model to follow. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 says this, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
Later on, in this, uh, earlier in that same letter, he says, I urge you, be imitators of me. And that's why I sent to you Timothy. Four more times, he says, be imitators of me. Now, that's not an arrogant statement. It's what he wants them to do because he's imitating Christ. Because he's imitating Christ, he wants them to imitate him. And there's nothing that he wants more than they imitate Christ and be like Christ. And so we learn right at the beginning of this sermon, which everyone can use, the importance of modeling, example. We're all being watched. You're being watched by your children, your spouse, your grandchildren, the people you work with, your neighbors, people in the church. I'm told that every single person has a circle of minimum 75 people in which you are in regular contact with. Relatives, neighbors, work partners. Some of you in church probably have hundreds of people that you're in regular contact with. People are watching us. And we have more influence than we realize with other people. We are all human beings, influence of other people. John Wooden was well known as a legendary basketball coach, and he made this very famous statement. The most powerful leadership tool you have is your personal example. Let me read that again. The most powerful leadership tool you have is your personal example. How do children learn? One-year-old, two-year-old, they can't read. How do they learn? Watching. Modeling, you learn your language, you learn your attitude, you learn your, even your voice from your parents. Just watching. Much of life is imitation of others, our heroes, our peers. So I can right now, <clears throat> right in front of you, watch that water. He'll get it. Right now, I can go back 60 years ago in my memory. I was not raised in a Christian home, and the church I was in was very liberal. No one would ever carry a Bible. I have no idea what they taught. When I became a born-again Christian, several years later, my parents finally let me leave that church and go to a real Christian church where there were believers in a believing community. It was only about 50 people. But I can remember right now, 60 years ago, Walking into that church and seeing those people carry big black Schofield Bibles. I never saw a person carry, well, I didn't even have a Bible. I never saw people going to church with a Bible. That's what the pastor does. And even he didn't carry a Bible. There's a big giant super Bible up in the front he read once a week. I remember how those people dressed for Sunday morning. I remember how they prayed I remember how they sang. They knew the songs, some of them we just sang. They didn't need to look at the book. They had sung those songs a hundred times. I remember their great love for the Bible. And even if the preacher wasn't that good, they just loved them. Anyone who opened the Bible and gave the Bible, they just loved it. It weren't so demanding. That influence is still with me. Now, I don't remember a single sermon. 
That does not mean I didn't learn. No, I did learn. But if you said, what sermon did you like the best? I don't remember a single one, but I remember every person. Some of those people became lifelong friends, several of them I buried. This is why Peter says to the church leaders, the elders, be examples to the flock. Don't domineer the flock. Paul led by example. Now, listen carefully what I'm going to say to you. Never underestimate the extraordinary power of your personal life example to influence and inspire other people positively for God. You are an influencer. We are all influencers. And we underrate that role. You go to church each week? You go to Wana? You help in Sunday school? You're a faithful Christian person? Read your Bible every day? You're an influencer. You're a model. People are watching you. You think the only people they watch is the preacher. They really watch him. But they're watching you. Your children are watching you. So I had a situation in our church one Sunday morning. The young people were leading the, the church music, and they got a little carried away, got a little too loud. And when they were done, I have nothing to do with the music or the youth people. When they were done, I saw this man coming at me, and I knew him. I knew I was in trouble. And he came right up to me, and he got right in my face. He was that far. I could feel the spit coming out of his mouth. He's going, you are going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ for what those young people did and ruined my worship today. Now, somehow by the Holy Spirit, I knew, don't say anything. <laughs> don't say anything. World War III will break out. I didn't say a word. And then he goes, well, at least you're open-minded. And off he walks. <laughs> now, Love covers a multitude of sins. I knew this man. I knew how easily he gets upset. So I did not pursue that or, or carry it on. Just let it go. Now, what if that moment when he came up to my face and he's yelling in my face, literally, shaking his finger in my face, I pushed him back. What if I spit at him? What if I, I, I used a curse word? What if I kicked him? Well, there's people all around me. What if I did one of those things? Their estimate of me would, they wouldn't say anything, but their estimate would just go down like that. But let's say I did what I did. I didn't say anything or do anything. I just stood there and let them uh, uh, tell me how bad I was, and I'm going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. I already knew that, so that wasn't anything new. <laughs> their estimate of me goes up. My children are watching. My grandchildren are watching. My wife's watching. What's he going to do? This is the importance of example. Paul says, you remember my example. From the very first day I landed in Asia, how I lived. Well, how did he live? Well, he tells us here in three different days. First, serving the Lord with all humility. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. From the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. So he calls upon his dear friends to remember his example. How did he live among them? Notice what he says. From the first day I set foot in Asia, serve the Lord with all humility. That's the first thing he says. He doesn't rehearse his many successes, his expansive travels, or his brilliant intellect, or indomitable zeal, or heavenly visions, or extraordinary miracles, or divine authority. The first thing he says is, you saw 
that I serve the Lord with all humility. That sets the tone for the entire speech, actually. Notice he says, serving the Lord as a slave. That word uh, serving is the word for serving as a slave. It's from the word doulos. He served the Lord like a, a slave would serve a master. From the time of his life-transforming encounter on the Damascus Road, he saw Christ as Lord and he himself as a slave of the Lord. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That's his message. Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. So he says, I want you to remember, I serve like a slave the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. How else should we serve? He's Lord. Jesus is the Lord. He's the master. We can only be his servants and slaves. The best leaders are those who see themselves as slaves of the Lord's people. Not big shots. Then he says, with all humility. Humility is the only proper attitude for a servant. And for one who says Jesus is Lord. Notice all humility. Don't miss that. All humility. Humility permeated his actions, his words, his attitudes, his teaching, his interaction with his fellow workers, and his leader-follower relationships. Everything he did was marked by humility. Normally, big shot people don't Act that way, do they? They want you to know of all their accolades and all the famous people they know and the famous places they've gone to. Paul said, no, I want you to remember I served as a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything I did was marked, not by pride, not by selfishness, which marks so much of what we do, but with all humility. And then he says, well, let me ask you something. How does... A strong, gifted, brilliant, energetic leader be humble. Look at Paul. See how he takes these roles. He doesn't exalt in titles. He, he doesn't promote himself. He, said, he says here, for we do not proclaim ourselves. We do not. He's not on the television going, please send your money in. You will get four times back. Please join my ministry. You will be blessed. We don't proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and we proclaim ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. What an attitude. What is it like for a person to be a humble leader? Well, let me give you some examples of what a humble leader should be, or a humble person. Christian, um, humility is really a Christian virtue. It's a Christ-like virtue. A Christ-like humble attitude makes a leader more teachable. More approachable, very important word. More receptive to constructive criticism. It makes him better able to see his own limitations and failures. Better able to submit to and work with other people. Better qualified to deal with the sins and failures of other people. A humble leader is less defensive. Less prone to fight. Quicker to reconcile differences. 
and more at ease in personal relationships. A humble soul enjoys promoting the gifts and the popularity of other people. And it's not jealous or envious when others have great accomplishments. It's only with an attitude of all humility that we can be leaders like the Lord Jesus Christ. And can we keep peace in the church? You know, the attitude that some of us have is the attitude of Diotrephus, who loved to put himself first. No wonder he had so much fighting. Now, really, in a side way, this is a uh, warning against pride. The universal temptation church leaders face is pride of position, pride of title, pride of knowledge, pride of giftedness, and here's a big one, pride of rightness. We're the right group. About every 10 to 15 years, there is the Lausanne Conference. Last uh, time, it was in 2010, the Lausanne Conference in Cape Town, South Africa. They only allow 5,000 people to come, and they have to come from all the different nations of the world. After the conference, it lasts several weeks, they will normally put out a book, and it will give statistics, and it will give warnings, it will give uh, progress reports, from all, every, literally every country in the world. And at the last conference, the report that came out was very, very interesting. But one of the things that was agreed upon is the lack of humility among pastors was a worldwide harm to believers spiritually and needed to be urgently addressed. A worldwide problem. Paul says, I want you to remember, I serve the Lord with all humility. And second, serving the Lord with tears. Now, what he's doing at this point is he's preparing these men for his departure. He says to them, you will not see my face again. That's why they're so broken up over this. So he's preparing them for the heartaches and the persecution they would soon face. It seems that Paul was like a dam. As long as he was there, he could hold back much of the forces of evil. Every time he would leave a church, the false teachers would just come in like with a vacuum. Just shoom, and they'd come. And there'd be problems. He knew that was coming. So what he's saying now is preparedness. Be prepared. This is what's going to happen. Now, in the army or the armed forces, uh, they used to use the word preparedness. Now they use readiness. So let's say that uh, Mr. Putin and the Russians attacked us tomorrow. Kansas is a good place to be. You don't want to be in New York or Washington, D.C. Stay right here. Maybe get like a foxhole or something like that. It would not be hours or days or weeks to be responding to an attack. It would be minutes. In minutes, planes will be in the air. We're ready. Readiness is so important in the military and to protect us. Well, that's what Paul's doing. Readiness. Gentlemen, you will face tears. You will face persecution. Now, the first one here is be prepared for tears. When you love people and you're attentive to the needs, you will weep. You'll weep over broken marriages and divided homes and ugly conflicts among church members, ultimately untimely deaths and crippling sicknesses and dreadful addictions to pornography and alcohol and drugs. There is much to weep over. There are terrible things that happen in a terrible, sinful world. A friend of mine used to always say, the fingerprints of the curse 
is upon everything. The fingerprints of the curse is upon everything. There will be tears, gentlemen. There will be harsh things that will happen. Be prepared. Next, serving the Lord amidst persecution. Since the day Cain killed his godly brother Abel, the world and the God of this world has been at war with God, his prophets, his people, his Messiah. This is the oldest continuous war, war in the world, the war between Satan and God and his people. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul's serving the Lord was marked by relentless persecution. And some of this persecution was from the covenant people of God, the Jewish people, the Old Testament people. They were the biggest enemies of Christ in the cross. And what he's talking about here, as he says, is organized plots to kill him. And the same thing will happen to them. Paul is preparing the elders to face organized, planned persecution. Now, if we live, if you live in a um, democratic, secularized society, you're probably not going to be tortured or sent to the gas chamber or a concentration camp. But you will face discrimination against your beliefs. And this is happening more and more. Verbal ridicule, threatened with lawsuits, You'll be accused of misinterpreting Jesus' beautiful teaching on love and flowers and bubbles and tolerance and world peace. Whether you know this or not, there's a new secularism in town. It's not like the old secularism, which I grew up with, which they basically left us alone. No, there's an aggressive, hostile secularism that is emerging that will not put up with our beliefs. It's militant secularism, intolerant of historical Christian truth. In fact, you may see the day that some of our beliefs will be criminalized, if not sometimes already here. That's the persecution we're going to face from secular society. You may have a very hard time getting a job if you will not fly the rainbow flag. You may not be employable anymore. People may not do business with you anymore. This is happening right now in our city. I've talked to several people in business that are being forced into making decisions about these sexual revolutionaries today. It's right here, right now. It's only going to explode. It'll be a little bit different. kind. It'll be, dis it'll be persecution by discrimination, elimination. Now serving the Lord with teaching and evangelizing all people. We're going to move ahead here a little bit on the PowerPoint. Now notice what Paul says here. So first of all, he reminds them, he served the Lord with a humble heart. He served the Lord with tears. There's, there's, some, there's an emotional price you will pay for this work. And you serve the Lord by being persecuted. Jesus was persecuted, you'll be persecuted. You were promised persecution. Don't be surprised, be ready. But now he shifts the idea here, serving the Lord by teaching and evangelizing all people, Acts 20, 20. Now notice carefully what it says here. Holding back nothing what was profitable. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. There was no aspect of the Christian doctrine that Paul neglected to teach. He did not 
omits some of the finer details of the faith, nor adopts some of the truths to the spirit of the age. Some churches avoid speaking of certain doctrines because they're rather offensive and they're hard to understand. Paul resisted that temptation. All that Christ taught him, he taught them. These elders lacked nothing in their theological education. Later, he will say, this is so important, later he will say, I taught you the whole counsel of God. And then he goes on to say this, there was no one single point of doctrine that was profitable, declaring all that is profitable, to the elders that Paul held back. He's emphatic about this. He says it twice. Paul's teaching was thorough and in-depth. Nothing was left out. Now you say, why is that important? It's very important for this reason. The elders had to trust him that he gave them the full message that Christ revealed to him. Nothing left out. Anything profitable, he gave it to them. Thoroughly taught. Three years. Now, what do most cults do? Well, they say something like this. Well, we believe the Bible, but a lot is left out. Over those two millenniums, the Roman Catholic Church took a lot out of the Bible. It's not the Bible that the apostles wrote. You have to have our new Bible, the new revelation. Isn't that true? One of the first things a false teacher will do is deny the authority or the full gospel message. They want to either reinterpret it or end some things in it. Now, listen. The false teachers would come and do this. We know there is no other message. When people say to you, well, all religions are saying the same thing, they're just talking out of an empty head. There's no other religion as a trinity. There's no other religion as a God-man. Or salvation is by his grace and grace alone. There's no other. It's not even close. No wonder this grace naturally leads to deep, heartfelt praise and worship. And so in Ephesians 1, 6, Paul says this, To the praise so taken with the gospel of the grace of God, it moved him to be willing to give his life to testify to this gospel. To know it, to protect it, to proclaim it, to testify of it. I close with this wonderful, wonderful hymn. It captures everything we've just read. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall my praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free. Oh, for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches even me. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for the wonderful, great, and glorious doctrine of the grace of God to the ungodly. So taken up was the apostle with this message that his life was of not precious to himself or of any value to himself, but the message of the grace of God. May we be captured by this message. May it cause greater worship and greater devotion to Jesus Christ our Lord. In the name of our Lord, amen.